morning, everyone. Um, it's a real privilege to be here today. It's good to be able to help out the guys at the last minute, John and Ben and David and the others in the committee. Uh, it's good to be able to help out Jonty as well. Um, Jonty keeps me constantly amused on Twitter. You should follow him. And um, if you haven't read Jonty's book, you should definitely buy it because it's absolutely superb. But the reason why I'm most pleased to be here today is that I thought I was going to be spending the whole day marking. <laughs> and even though the marking's going to have to wait, it is still much, much better um, to be here than to be doing that. A um, few words of caveat as well. Christmas dinners are supposed to be cooked fresh. Um, this meal is a microwave reheat, um, and sometimes things don't reheat that well in the microwave, um, so I apologise um, for that as well. Uh, let me just pray and ask that the Lord would really help us. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to your word... We are conscious that we need your help. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would overshadow us now and give us insight and understanding into the things which are contained in your word. Bless us now, we pray, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've got this great genealogy that Matthew's Gospel um, begins with. I don't know if any of you have heard Andrew Peterson's version of that. Anyone listen to that? You should look that up online as well. Um, Andrew Peterson's got this great Christmas album, and he does a superb song, which is basically just the text of the genealogy, and it's really, really good. Um, we come to the end of that genealogy, and knowing that the Christmas story is about to follow on from it, we're expecting it to say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, whose mother was Mary. But that's not the way that verse 16 reads. It reads differently. It says, Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. This is the fifth of those kind of slightly awkward moments that are contained in this genealogy when the normal flow and rhythm of it is interrupted. No doubt you heard about it last night. Tamar, who played the harlot, she breaks the rhythm. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, does the same thing. There's Ruth, the Moabitess, and there is simply the wife of Uriah, with whom David committed adultery. And now, Mary, Joseph wasn't the father. Who was the biological father then of this child? In verse 18, you can no doubt imagine Joseph our betrothed. Now, the closest that we have to that is the notion of engagement, but betrothal was different to engagement. Betrothal was a legally binding commitment. It was a legal commitment that you made to marry that took place before witnesses. 
In this culture, Mary and Joseph were formally and very publicly engaged to be married. Betrothal, it normally lasted around a year, and during this time, the bride remained at home with her family, and she wouldn't move into the home of her new husband until after the actual marriage itself. And if infidelity took place during betrothal, it was more than simply fornication. Unfaithfulness during betrothal was viewed as marital infidelity. Mary had been away visiting her cousin Elizabeth, and Mary comes back, and Mary comes back with a bump. And imagine your Joseph in all of this. Joseph must have been absolutely heartbroken by what's taken place. Because Joseph knows that this baby wasn't his. And the natural assumption would always have been that Mary had been unfaithful. And so Joseph must have been devastated and crushed by the whole thing. Mary was pregnant, but she wasn't carrying his child. What's really happened? Well, it's explained for us in verse 18. The Lord Jesus has been supernaturally conceived. He has no biological father. This isn't even so much a virgin birth. This is a virgin conception. But although there is no biological father, the child who will be born has a father. Jesus Christ is not going to be an adopted son of God. This one who is to be born is the Son of God incarnate. I think often as evangelicals, we're not terribly clear in the way that we think and speak about this. And that's a real tragedy because often evangelicals are at great pains to be very clear in the way that they talk about the death of Jesus Christ. But we ought to be no less concerned to speak about the birth of Jesus Christ with real clarity and understanding. Sometimes the way that we speak about this, sometimes the way that you hear people pray about this, is more even than just being fudgy. Sometimes the way that evangelicals think about the identity of this one who was born is simply wrong. And that matters. It's not as if the person of Christ and the work of Christ are two things that are detached from one another. The person and the work of Christ are deeply meshed together. And so if you want to understand what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection, you need to understand who he is as the one who was born in Bethlehem. And the church in the 21st century has been bequeathed a great tradition about how we do that 
faithfully. How we speak about who Jesus is in a way which is really clear. The church has given us great ways about speaking about Jesus' birth. And with God's help, in his mercy, we're able to stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before and to confess the faith with truthfulness and faithfulness. Perhaps the greatest statement about the birth of Jesus Christ and about his person was made way back in the 5th century by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Let me read you what is called the Chalcedonian Definition. You can look it up. It's a great, concise, distilled-down, concentrated account of the person of who Jesus Christ is. So listen carefully, because every word of this is, is crafted to really count. This is what was confessed in the 5th century. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time, of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us, in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognised in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by their union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. It is super concentrated, isn't it? Like every word in that counts. And if you wanted to do something which would be really edifying in the run-up to Christmas, you'd do well to print that out online and just to meditate on it and to ponder the great, great mystery 
which is the incarnation. Christmas is a profound mystery. All those words are not trying to explain the mystery away and say, oh, if we give enough words, we'll be able to define the whole thing and to put it in some kind of box. That's not what Christian doctrine is trying to do. A doctrinal statement like that is trying to keep us from going off into errors that people have stumbled off to in the past. And then also right at the center to say, here's the mystery. Here is the great wonder of the incarnation. Gaze into this mystery in worship, wonder, and adoration. So the virgin birth, that's what's recorded for us here. Now, throughout much of the late 19th century and through much of the 20th century, people became highly sceptical about Jesus' virgin birth. And this whole suspicion came out of a search for a version of Christianity which was non-miraculous. People were searching for an account of Christianity that they thought would be reasonable. And it was said, it's not really essential for you to believe something like this. Talk of a virgin birth, that is only a relic from a bygone pre-scientific age when people would have believed almost anything at all, just taking it at face value, never asking any questions. People back then, they were gullible, but not like people like us today. Well, if you look in Matthew 1 here, Joseph does not sound... He doesn't present as being a gullible man who would have believed almost anything without asking questions. When Joseph sees this, when he hears about it, he is a man who is troubled and greatly perplexed. But even through all of that, in verse 19, isn't it just great the way that Joseph's character really shines through for us. We're told two things about Joseph. He's a just man and he is a kind man. He's just. That means that he's righteous. His life is one which is conformed to the law of God. Joseph is the kind of man who loves God's word. And that means that Joseph knows then as now that the marriage bed is supposed to be something which is kept pure and undefiled. And so for Joseph, the just man, to go on with this marriage, it just seemed impossible for him to do. If he goes ahead with a wedding, then everyone would have assumed that Joseph was the father and therefore Joseph was the kind of man who didn't really care about the law of God. Joseph, he is a just man. But he's also a kind man. He loves God and he loves people. And in particular, Joseph loved Mary. 
Now, he could have acted in a way which would have led to Mary being publicly disgraced. That was acceptable in those days. Socially, it appeared as if Mary had put Joseph to shame, and it was well within his rights to show just how blameless he was by heaping blame down on Mary. And he could have done that in a way which absolutely would have destroyed her. He could have shamed her. He could have seen her expelled from the community. But Joseph, just and kind man, determined that that was something he would not do. And so he agonizes over his decision, trying to come up with some sort of honorable way forward through this. He didn't want to make matters worse than they already appeared to be. He wanted to end this as quietly and as discreetly as was possible. Now, in our culture today, something like that might happen quite easily. The engagement would simply have been broken off. But that wasn't possible in those days. Joseph needed a certificate of divorce because the betrothal was a legal thing. But Joseph planned and thought about it in his, own, in his own mind, and he decided that he would do this quietly. He would simply annul the betrothal. He was just, but he wasn't cruel, and so he would divorce her in a discreet manner. Why this combination of justice and mercy? Well, it's just the kind of father that the Lord Jesus Christ needs as his adoptive father here on earth. Fathers, one way or another, they leave their marks very firmly upon their sons. And God in his providence sees to it that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be raised in a home that loves justice and mercy. And then the Lord intervened. Verse 20, Joseph's there. He's drifting off into sleep. But he's doing that in painful contemplation. And in his sleep, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And the way that Joseph's greeted is incredible because Joseph is a poor young craftsman. And yet this man is addressed with a royal title. Joseph is a son of David. Joseph's placed in a kingly line. He's not rich. He's not a great landowner. He's not part of the nobility, but this is a son of David. And the angel in verse 20 tells him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. No doubt the fear of taking Mary and his wife had frequently crossed his mind. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Do that and the message is astonishing. The angel says, what is conceived within her was from the Holy Spirit. Things were not as they seemed. 
the angel explained that Mary had not been unfaithful. Mary was still a virgin, but she was a virgin who was with child by the Spirit. So once again, for the second time in our brief incident, the conception of Christ in the womb of Mary is attributed to the Holy Spirit. This is no normal birth. The Holy Spirit had been at work so that the child that she conceives is both divine and human. And this virgin birth, this child with this identity, is not some take-it-or-leave-it doctrine within Christianity. The miraculous lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel. This is a fundamental Christian belief. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And that's the wonder of the Incarnation. The eternally begotten Son, the eternal Son who knows no beginning, the second person of the Trinity has taken a human nature into personal union. Mary had been telling the truth all along. She hadn't been unfaithful. Mary was a pure and godly young woman. And the angelic messenger gives Joseph a clear command. He calls him to change his plans and to take Mary as his wife. And Joseph, as son of David, has got a role to play in all of this. The angel commands him in verse 21, Joseph, you've got to be the one to name the child. And the naming is so important here. If Joseph names the child, he's going to be claiming the child as his own. What Joseph does by the naming is conferring upon Jesus the legal recognition that Jesus is his adopted son. By naming him with this name, Joseph is adopting Jesus into the line of David. So that's what's happened. This is a supernatural, miraculous birth. This is the wonder of the incarnation. But why has it happened? It's not enough simply to know what took place here. It's imperative that we understand why this has happened. And that's explained for us in verse 21. Joseph, you're to name him. You're to adopt him into the line of David. But you're to call him Jesus and give him that name because he is going to be the one who will save his people from their sins. At one level, there's not that much which is particularly surprising about calling the child Jesus. Historians tell us that it was the sixth most popular name for baby boys in Palestine at that time. What matters is not so much the name itself, but the meaning that's given to the name here. 
That's what's vital. Not simply that God is going to save his people, but that this is the one who will save his people from their sins. Right from the very beginning, the most important thing that we have to learn about this child is the fact of his destiny. He's come to rescue. He has come to save people, his people, from their sins. We have to be fully persuaded that that is what the Christian gospel is about. Because people are always going to want us to redefine the gospel and to give the gospel a tweak so that it becomes somehow or other more acceptable and more palatable in our world. So much wrong with our world. But just what is the great problem with us? Where does it lie? Is it the breakdown of the family? Injustice? Is it, as so many people think, a lack of education? Are the problems of our world primarily socioeconomic ones of poverty? Is the real problem that people are lazy and don't get their act together and don't be the best people that they could be? Are our problems caused by a great clash of civilizations? Is our problem, first and foremost, the environment? Well, the scriptures say to us that at its root, the ultimate cause of the problems of this world is our sin. And the good news of the gospel is that the one that God has sent is someone who will save his people from their sins. And the truth is that we cannot save ourselves. And the good news is the announcement that God has done what is necessary in order to save us. Jesus hasn't come to draw out our latent resources. He hasn't come, first and foremost, simply to inspire us to be better people. He doesn't come as a professor. He doesn't come as a guru. He doesn't come as an economist. He doesn't come as a life coach. He comes as a saviour. He comes to do the very thing that we could never do for ourselves. That's why this baby has come. Right from the beginning, from the very start of his life, this one who is to be born will do what every single one of us has failed to do. He will live a perfect, blameless sinless life. He was obedient. And so this one, this one given the name of Savior, will be one who will offer himself as a sinless sacrifice. 20 chapters later in this gospel, Matthew will explain that Jesus went to the cross as the blameless one in order to bear the full weight of God's judgment. He will save his people. Not even that he'll come in order to make salvation possible. He will come and he will save. The Father has sent his Son, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is true of his birth is true of all that he has done. 
The Father sent his Son for the salvation of his people. The Son has died for this, and the Spirit will apply that salvation into the lives of all God's people. So we've thought about what happened. This supernatural virgin birth, the birth of the God-man. We've thought about why it happened. He's come as a saviour. He's come to rescue his people. Let's close by thinking a little bit more about who it is who's been born, about what his identity is. Well, in the account, Matthew speaks up for us. Matthew's a good teacher. He doesn't just tell the story, but sometimes Matthew emerges from the shadows as a narrator, and he explains to us the great significance of what's taken place so that we don't miss it. Matthew says, you've got to know that all of this fulfills ancient prophecy. And Matthew wants to highlight one prophecy to us in particular. It's the one that was read to us from Isaiah chapter 7. It was a promise that was made wonderfully 700 years before its ultimate fulfillment came. Isaiah prophesied and he said that a virgin conceiving would be a sign, a sign given by God himself that the Lord had come in order to save his people. According to the scripture, that promised one would be the very presence of God among his people. That's why he's to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, the incarnate presence of God amongst us foundation of Christianity is a mind-blowing miracle. It's a miracle which is incomprehensible to us. God has come in our flesh to dwell among us. Emmanuel, God has come in order to save us. There's no way that you could describe it other than saying that this is a miracle of miracles. God has come in order to rescue. The Son of God took on our humanity. He lived amongst us. He died and he was raised bodily from the dead. He is God with us. So do you see how the virgin birth is not some optional extra. It's not the kind of thing which is just believed by some Christians. This is something which lies at the very heart of Christianity. The virgin birth of Jesus expresses a great mystery. It tells us how Jesus was both human and divine. This is how we received the saviour that we needed. We needed this child Three things were really necessary if we were to be saved. We need a divine saviour. We need a human saviour. And we need a sinless saviour. 
And those three things are beautifully woven together as Jesus is conceived within the Virgin Mary. So our Savior had to be divine. On the last day, before the judgment throne of God, there will be a vast number that no one will be able to count or number. And that means that there are millions upon millions of people whose sins need to be atoned for. If Jesus were simply a perfect human being and nothing more, he could have substituted for one person, but never for a multitude of that number. In order to be the saviour of all God's people, only a divine saviour would be able to offer the sacrifice which was of infinite worth. We need a saviour who's divine. But we also need a saviour who is human because we are human. And if our mediator will be our substitute, he must be like us. He must be of our flesh. He must be one who can be tempted in every way as we are. And yet without sin. We need a saviour who's divine, but we also need a saviour who is human. And then finally, we need a sinless human. We can't have a human who's in the same predicament as us someone who's in the same boat as we are, we need someone to come from outside in order to rescue us. We need someone who doesn't inherit Adam's sin. We need one who is not guilty and polluted in the way that we are. And that's why he is born of Mary. Joseph is not his biological father. This is a different child, one who can live a different life. He can do God's will from his earliest days. He can live a life of perfect and continual obedience. It is the virgin birth alone that explains to us how we can have a saviour who is simultaneously divine, human and sinless. Joseph awakes. What's he do? Well, after this dream, in one sense, nothing has changed. But from another point of view, Joseph sees everything differently. He does exactly what he was commanded to do. The quick divorce turns into a quick marriage as he takes Mary as his wife. Joseph willingly married her, even though it meant that there was always going to be this cloud of suspicion hanging over their relationship. Many people would have looked on and thought, oh, there's Joseph, stupid, gullible, compromised. But Joseph was willing to do what he was called to do out of obedience. And in time, 
When the baby was born, Joseph obeyed what he was called to do. He gave him the name Jesus, because this one would save his people from their sins. And he gave him the name, and so adopted him into the family line of David. Because this one who is born is a saviour, and this one is also our king. Let us pray.